0: Hi, hello there, and welcome to Chapter 3 of the Book Report with Noah Linsk. I'm Reese Hendrick, host of Science Factual, and for today's episode, Noah and I cover Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein. This 1961 Hugo Award-winning novel comes as a suggestion from Noah, so he took the reins on this dive while I got to just enjoy a fantastic read for once without having to commit to the hours of research which typically accompanies reading a book for the podcast. Alright, enough out of me, because here's Noah with a synopsis before he gets into the facts behind this Heinlein staple.
1: Valentine Michael Smith is a human born on Mars, the product of the first human expedition to Mars after the original members of the expedition disappear mysteriously mike is discovered by the second human expedition to mars twenty five years later having been raised by martians and having no concept of human society this expedition brings mike back to earth which is now ruled by a world government which arose following world war three the chief executive of this government secretary general joseph douglas has him sequestered at a military hospital where he is kept hidden from the public Douglas is largely steered and controlled by his shrewish wife, Alice, who in turn is steered by her psychic, Madame Vasant, because women be liking astrology, am I right, fellas? Jill Boardman is a nurse at the hospital where Mike is being kept. She is described this way. There was no harm in her, and her hobby was men. Naturally, upon learning that there was a famous patient slash prisoner at the hospital who had never seen a woman before, she immediately sneaks into his room to get a look at him. While there, Jill shares a glass of water with Mike. Unintentionally, this triggers a bond known to Mike as water-sharing, and Jill becomes his water-brother, a familial bond which Mike holds to be extremely important. Jill's boyfriend, Ben Caxton, is a reporter investigating the developing man-from-Mars story. When Ben is kidnapped by the government, Jill takes matters into her own hands. She breaks Mike out of the hospital by disguising him as a woman and brings him to the home of Jubal Harshaw, an associate of Ben's. In the course of this escape, Mike demonstrates unexplained powers by causing several government officers, known as the SS, to vanish without a trace. Jubal Harshaw is an author stand-in for Heinlein himself, a wealthy and hyper-competent doctor, lawyer, author, and bon vivant. Harshaw lives a life of ease as a result of his personal brilliance. He spends his days lounging poolside, effortlessly dictating stories to his three beautiful secretaries to be released under various pen names mike jill and crew settle in on harshaw's estate and mike begins to become acquainted with earth becoming water brothers with various members of harshaw's household and beginning to learn about earth culture following an attempt by government authorities to recapture mike which results in dozens of ss soldiers being disappeared harshaw orchestrates a meeting with secretary-general douglas At this meeting, Harshaw forms a truce with the world government by giving executorship of Mike's estate to Douglas, thus neatly resolving the book's central conflict and prompting the reader to wonder what's going to happen in the second half of the novel. Free to travel within Earth's society now, Mike, along with Jubal and their entourage, visit a church known as the Fosterites, a religion which encourages its parishioners to engage in gambling, prostitution, and whatever other vices they desire. Reese is giving a hand signal, you know, the heavy metal hand signal, Where these vices exist under the auspices of the church, they are not considered sins. Harshaw considers the fosterites to be hypocritical, but Mike finds them intriguing. Nonetheless, when Supreme Bishop Digby pulls Mike aside for a private conversation, an unspecified disagreement between the two causes Mike to disappear Digby. Later, at Harshaw's compound, Mike has sex for the first time with one of his female water brothers and immediately decides that sex is the most important and defining characteristic of humanity, which, hey, we've all been there from this revelation mike and jill go off together to join the circus where mike begins to learn the basics of showmanship over time this influences mike to establish his own church the church of all worlds which also serves to begin indoctrinating humans into martian ways of thinking and language learning martian language begins to impart on the learners some of mike's psychic powers The most important word in the Martian language is grok, which from context clues Mike's friends had intuited to mean to understand. But as they come to grok-groking more fully, they learn that the literal translation is to drink, metaphorically making an understanding of the grok thing a part of oneself. The innermost circle of the church is composed of Mike's most senior students who form a polyamorous sex cult, which serves to further heighten their powers word of these events makes its way back to Jubal, who objects to Mike's methods before going to visit and joining in himself. Mike's acolytes talk casually about their plans to gradually indoctrinate the entire population of Earth into their practices, as well as Mike's habit of regularly disappearing dozens and even hundreds of people opposed to their aims. To be clear, this is all portrayed as an unambiguously good thing. Eventually, a mob of humans outraged by the Church of All Worlds forms around the headquarters of the organization ready for violence. Mike walks out into the mob and allows himself to be apparently killed by them. As his body is destroyed, he discorporates, becoming an omnipresent spiritual being. Jubal is made the new living leader of the circle, while Mike remains present, providing spiritual guidance as the group continues. And now for some facts about Robert A. Heinlein. Robert Anson Heinlein was born July 7, 1907, in Butler, Missouri. Heinlein, along with Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, is often identified as one of the three grandmasters of science fiction within the Golden Age. Heinlein was named the first science fiction writer's grandmaster in 1974. So profound was his influence on early science fiction that he is often known by the nickname the Dean of Science Fiction. Heinlein served in the Navy from 1929 to 1934. This experience would be very influential in his writing and outlook on life. In 1934, Heinlein worked on the Upton Sinclair campaign for California governor. In 1938, he ran for California State Assembly as an anti-communist democrat and lost. Heinlein was married three times. His third wife, Ginny, to whom he was married for most of his life, is often cited as being the inspiration for many of his strong female characters. She was an accomplished multi-sport athlete, spoke seven languages, held a doctorate in biochemistry, and held a higher rank in her husband in the Navy. Heinlein is credited with popularizing the phrase, pay it forward, in his 1951 book, Between Planets. Jubal Harshaw makes specific reference to being an adult as early as 1923 during the Harding administration and is still cranky about the Teapot Dome scandal, which was probably already a fairly crankish position in 1961, but in whatever year this book takes place really places Harshaw as pedantically obsessed. And what year does this book take place in anyway? The envoy leaves Earth eight years after the first moon colony is established, travels three years, and disappears. Then the champion mission, 25 years later, finds Smith. Now, humans colonized the solar system really fast in older science fiction, so let's take the date of the real moon landing, 1969, and call that the first lunar colony in this timeline. That would put the Van Tromp expedition finding Mike in or around 2005, making Jubal Harshaw 98 years old at the beginning of the story. The chief executive of the fictional world government of Stranger in a Strange Land had many of his decisions dictated to him by his wife's astrologer, a premise so absurd that it would not happen in real life until the Reagan administration. Seriously, Ronald Reagan made decisions at the advice of an astrologer. I know that sounds like a joke, but sometimes truth is exactly as strange as fiction. In his 1952 book, The Rolling Stones, Heinlein created a species of Martian wildlife he called flat cats. These are a species of small, fuzzy, featureless, purring animals that can reproduce rapidly when fed and quickly overwhelm the spaceship they are on. If you are the sort of person who listens to this show, you're probably thinking right now, boy... Those sound a lot like the triples from the classic Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. Indeed, the screenwriter for that episode, David Gerrold, admitted to having read the book, but claimed he was not consciously aware of the similarities as he was writing. Heinlein waived any claim to similarity in exchange for an autographed copy of the script, a decision he would go on to regret after the Tribbles became as iconic as they are now. The fictional legal precedent under which Mike is considered by Earthlings to be the sovereign of Mars is known in story as the Larkin Decision, a real-world Supreme Court ruling of the same name, known also as Larkin v. Grendel's Den, Inc., had in fact more than might be expected to do with grokking and other themes of this story. In that 1982 case, the Supreme Court struck down a Massachusetts law which allowed churches to veto liquor licenses being issued to businesses within 500 feet of church premises. The court found the law to be unconstitutional as it violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. This decision, in effect, favors a right to drinking over the right of religious institutions to control others. Heinlein would be proud. When modern sci-fi fans talk about Robert Heinlein, the inevitable thing we end up talking about is his ideology. This, frankly, is because reading Heinlein, he feels inconsistent, almost to the point of irreconcilability. It's often stated that his ideology moved around throughout his career, but in my view, this does not pass the smell test. While Stranger in a Strange Land is largely concerned with free love and was influential to the hippie movement, Heinlein wrote Starship Troopers during a break in the middle of his work on Stranger in a Strange Land. Starship Troopers is frequently and not unreasonably criticized for having strong fascist themes. My initial plan for this episode was to begin with The Man Who Sold the Moon. This was a 1950 novella centered on D.D. Harriman, a businessman obsessed with being the first to travel to the moon and legally claim it for private industry rather than the government. Similar events occurred before the beginning of Stranger in a Strange Land with the Larkin decision, the court finding which granted ownership of the moon to lunar enterprises being an important factor within the logic of the story in estimating Smith's rights. Heinlein was a limited, mortal human being born in 1907, and although Stranger in a Strange Land spends a lot of time lecturing the reader on the importance of setting aside one's own cultural programming, calling into question conventional American social taboos ranging from sexuality to cannibalism, Heinlein is still deeply bound up in his own cultural mores. Several characters in the story reject the idea of homosexual relationships, and Heinlein's ideas around women, while obviously intended as progressive, still feel very much as if they were written in 1960 because, you know, they were. Heinlein also holds private property rights as being real in ways he never bothers to justify. While all these clear examples of cultural programming that affect Heinlein in ways that he is clearly as unaware of as the characters in his story are of the subjective nature of their own cultural values, this does not necessarily undermine the overall thought process in which Heinlein is engaging. Rather, it simply reveals the imperfectness of Heinlein himself in fully grokking his own message. What's more, there are almost certainly cultural values Heinlein and I share so deeply that I am incapable of even recognizing their own subjectivity within this work. Take, for instance, the central importance of water in both Martian and human cultures. While I would agree with Heinlein and his Martians that water is about as sacred a substance as can really be taken to exist on Earth, that belief is obviously founded in our mutual humanity. As a species which relies on water for all of our biological processes, the importance of water is inherent to us. A life form which evolved on Venus would likely hold carbon dioxide and sulfuric acid in a similarly lofty position. Heinlein says this of Jubal Harshaw. The fact that he had broken his oath more times than there were years intervening did not trouble him. His was not a small mind bothered by logic and consistency. The same applies to Heinlein himself. While certainly it is the case that there are many in modern society who call themselves libertarians and use their lack of logic and consistency to justify a desire for government so small that it fits into all of our bedrooms, this is clearly not Heinlein's intent. Heinlein's ideology is principally concerned with the individual liberty of himself. His characters are consistently individuals of special talent and ability. His blind spots are many, and critiques of him are often more thoroughly considered than his own, but that doesn't make him any less compelling to read. It must be noted that Heinlein himself was an especially talented and noteworthy individual, and that the influence of his personal creativity on the genre is massive and important. Isaac Newton said, If I have seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Heinlein, for all of his faults, was a giant without whom all of us lovers of science fiction would be shorter. My sources for this episode include the Encyclopedia Britannica, Timeline.com, Missourians.org, Middle Tennessee State University, and, of course, Wikipedia, because if it's on Wikipedia, it must be grokked in fullness. Also, Avery Books recommends two science fiction authors, Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney. What? Avery Brooks, like the actor from yeah. Star Trek Deep yeah. Space captain Nine, Cisco. yeah, Cisco, the yeah. Cisco, yeah, the Cisco has compelled us to read Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney. Well, and he he's... says it in a mysterious voice because I don't know if you see interviews with him, but he acts super mysterious in interviews. He's amazing. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. I, as, he has a voice that I only aspire to have.
0: Yeah. I think Cisco is probably my favorite captain. Oh
1: yeah, without a doubt. In yeah. Star
0: Trek lore, followed by Janeway, then Picard.
1: I, I would I would put Picard above Janeway for me, but I but I see where you're coming from. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, you know, anybody who's
0: able to successfully, you know, like navigate their way back from the, the Delta Quadrant is A-OK in my book, however infeasible it may be. <laughs> but we're not here to talk Trek, unfortunately, but we are here, fortunately, to talk about Robert A. Heinlein.
1: That's right, by golly. Yes, Robert A. Heinlein. 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 I've been saying it Heinlein. My entire life, and then doing research for this episode, it became fairly clear to me that it's supposed to be Heinlein, and I was like, oh, I'm going to correct that and pretend I knew the whole time. I've heard Heinlein said a few times, you know, uh, various
0: other nerds, I've I've heard their takes, you know, in, in videos on the YouTubes. Well, and granted, that is just
1: nerds on YouTube. We can't, you know, necessarily. Well, uh, I don't know, man. Nerds on YouTube are the highest authority in the land. Well, that is true. Yeah. I mean, us nerds on Spotify better watch our backs. That's true, man. Mm. Well, at least we're
0: king nerds of Shady Pines Radio so far. I would not hesitate
1: to say that. Uh, Plus, there was that time that you executed that other guy who claimed to be the king of Shady Pines Radio. radio, And at that point, you know, you're committed.
0: Yeah, although that execution was sanctioned by Brian and Callie. So, okay,
1: yeah, yeah. no, we we do
0: things by the book. That's true, yeah. yeah. I got a fun hood. It was uh, lo- locally <laughs> sourced wool uh, with, with fun buttons all over it. Yeah. It was
1: a fun time. Yeah. fun execution. Yeah, festive. Mm. So, Stranger in a Strange Land. Yeah. Um, Stranger in a Strange Land is a book that was given to me by Maddie Graves when I worked with her in the college cafeteria at Northern Michigan University and I dove into it and I loved it and you dove into Maddie or the book? Into the book. Got it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Delightful. <laughs> um <laughs>
0: No, it this was... is what i this is what I'm bringing to this episode, <laughs> folks. Because Telo <laughs> completely did all the research and everything. He did everything for this, so thank a thank you oh, yeah. uh, for that. B thank you for recommending it because it is a fun story. No. I wish I, I I could grok more from it, but that's that's why you're here.
1: Yes, no, well, and it's important actually. um, While we're here, hold on. Mm, yeah,
0: for those of you who can't see what's happening, we're taking a water break. Oh wow! Cheers, water brother.
1: Mm. may you never thirst likewise Mm. so stranger in a strange land was the first book by heinlein i read and i think it was the first science fiction book that i read that really went before like laser pew 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 and really went into like here's like a weird guy sort of explaining his weird worldview and the weird things that are important to him And that it really just like it opened my perspective on what science fiction can be and what science fiction can do and what can be grokked from telling a story that isn't just about being like, look how cool Darth Maul is with his double bladed lightsaber, a story that is about like, here's what Heinlein thinks is the way that human society should be. Well, he he certainly does a good job of introducing
0: a a protagonist that is just literally just plopped into it, right? Yeah. It's one thing to, you know, even be from the same planet and encounter a new culture. At least you have some semblance of, you know, like base understanding of your reality. But Mike literally comes from another planet. Yeah, absolutely. Which he subsequently owns. I mean, like, which is, I, I thought, a very interesting, like, Trope that I feel like gets used by other science fiction or just in general, like, action authors to set up, like, from some weird loophole, you've inherited a fuck ton of money. And that's going to allow you to do the events that transpire throughout the rest of the story. So you were right in the synopsis that you wrote about how that fact really opens up the floodgates for the rest of the story. Because he just finds himself in this situation. He has no designs on it, but what
1: he does with it is what's most interesting. So absolutely. And he's coming into a a human society that is actually quite different from our own, but that is an exaggerated version of things about our society that Heinlein wanted to critique. And that he's able to do this, you know, like the human society of Earth is just is depicted as being very materialistic and shallow and being subject to the whims of the world government, which you can sort of tell that Heinlein objects to. But he's also it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, I think that a lot of the things that he challenges he doesn't necessarily have a better answer to and he asks a lot of questions that he clearly doesn't have an answer to like a true libertarian like a true libertarian i suppose so (laughs) part of why i love it is because i read it at a phase in my life where i was a little bit more subject to that sort of thinking and now reading it as an adult um you kind of have to i
0: I think that caricaturizing and and critiquing a, a system without offering a solution is valuable in and of itself you know like yeah. if we're looking at another Heinlein property the starship troopers you know like the the film adaptation of the book is it further exacerbates it but it really brings in the elements of the federal news net, like network and all these different things like would you like to know more right and it's it has this feel of semi-efficient bureaucracy which is scary because the last time we had that in the 30s it was a big no-no <laughs>
1: The way that it's solved in the story is, you know, Jubal Harshaw acting as Mike's lawyer is Mm -hmm. able to essentially like sign over the executorship of Mike's estate and all of like essentially his worldly assets are under the direct control of the chief executive of the world government. The world government is not overthrown at any point in the story. Like, if anything, Douglas is just sort of like beyond whatever the halfway point of the story. Douglas is like offhandedly referred to as like almost a member of the gang. It's like a
0: double-edged sword, you know, like you need structure, Mm -hmm. but what type of structure? And I I think it also speaks to the fact that like, there is no answer kind of, because not everybody's going to agree on the way to do things. That double-edged sword of like, maybe we need a world government, but also like the idea of a world
1: government is scary. So I don't know what to do. No, absolutely. Well, and that's (laughs) also like, and that is like, the The way that the conflict of the story is resolved, and this is not by any means exclusive to Heinlein, but everybody who is the named characters does sort of end up on a side together, having all decided to agree with the same things. You well, know the, I mean? the status quo does usually win out. Well, I mean. I mean, like in this case, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It, it, is, it is very weird. You, you can't
0: pause a river. You know what I mean? You yeah. can You can only view the way that it moves in a certain space and time so like it's all moving in one direction it's just you know sometimes there's bends sometimes the river's deeper or wider i mean you know but it's all going toward the same goal which i think is just perpetuation i think at the end of the day like mike's transformation not to jump ahead yeah but to go we already did the synopsis yeah that's true like a non-corporeal sense you know is like that is literal transformation to go beyond the confines of our perceived reality. So I, I think oftentimes, you know, not only does science fiction do that, but it allows for continuity to exist outside of the box, if you will. You know what I mean?
1: Like, yeah. And to the and to, to the extent that the mission of the Church of All Worlds is to change the world, it is a gradual cultural assimilation. Yeah. Yeah, oh, nothing happens heat. overnight. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they say, like, down the line, we're going to just keep on bringing new people into this thing. And, right. uh, yeah, resistance yeah. is futile, <laughs> yeah. you know. Let's talk about the Fosterites. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: I, I love the juxtaposition of their whole ideology. If I were to join a
1: religion, I would give up atheism to be a Fosterite. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I mean, the Archangel Foster had wisdom. No one can doubt it. No um, one. Yeah. I think that a certain part of it is Heinlein really wants to get into wife swapping. It's there's like the whole like latter half of his career has been described by the cartoonist Zach Weiner as the get into the hot tub with old man Heinlein phase. I feel like a lot of sci fi
0: authors would want to doink each other's wives. <laughs> it, like just this weird, dumpy, smelly orgy. Mm-hmm. hmm Well, young Heinlein was a hottie. He was a he started, certified that's hottie true. The body. That's true. Yeah, yeah his Navy pictures. Yeah. He was getting the boys down the docks all sorts <laughs> of hot. But, like, if you were to take them all in their latter years, if you were to take yeah. the grandmasters of science fiction... You don't think Isaac Asimov's sideburns, the big <laughs> fluffy sideburns, that doesn't... Yeah, you just grab on oh. him from behind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Arthur C. Clark's fucking jerking his gherkin in the corner, just like... Yes, Heinlein pull harder. <laughs> All
1: right. Uh, Clark actually I think was actually a freak. Like we, Yeah, we, I we, could we, see yeah, that. We can we can get to it in like the Clark episode, but Clark I think was Yeah. I could see Clark being a freak. <laughs> and Heinlein, I mean, who knows? I mean, he was married three times. His third marriage lasted for most of his life. Okay. Yeah. So Reese, if polyamory actually gave you superpowers, how would Portland be different? I think we would cure
0: every std just out of necessity you know what i mean like all the brightest minds of portland would come together and stop smoking weed and drinking lattes
1: for five seconds and actually do something that positively affects the community in this story the one of the superpowers is they have a huge amount of control over the internal workings of their own bodies so probably that would be pretty snappy pretty easy to do imagine if that snap it actually see that one the one that actually made a sound yeah yeah snapping it Mentally. Mentally. Just be like, nope, snap away the clap. That's the slogan that you would see on billboards. Sure. Okay, so you're saying that you have, like, cellular-level
0: psychokinetic internal ability to cleanse your cells of any foreign viral agents
1: well like the characters the characters in the story have the ability to make themselves muscular and handsome just because they feel like it and sure okay so
0: that does certainly denote that and i would assume the cleansing the cellular structure of any disease would be included in that skill set so i think that portland would become uh A utopia finally <laughs> yeah, the, dream a of, time. the dream of the 90s would be
1: alive <laughs> in portland
0: if we were able to eradicate all potential for scds and be on that mental plane of ability because polyamory almost never works
1: i can't imagine how it would i mean frankly but you know that's me you gotta be
0: <laughs> attached i don't know man
1: i don't know how it works so mm. asking the wrong guy fair enough fair yeah. enough Yeah. I mean, actually, this is another thing is like, you know, like we're speculating as to like, oh, they're like controlling the internal mechanisms of their body. But very little of that is in this. And one thing that I find really interesting is that Heinlein is always considered to be one of the originators of hard science fiction, that is to say, science fiction that like is really rigorous with scientific accuracy. Sure. This book is not a book where that is present. This book, like much powers are functionally magic. I mean, yeah. It, when he makes people disappear, he says that he's like twisting them and they're falling away at a thing that's perpendicular to all known angles. So you can be like, okay, call that a fourth spatial dimension. And then right. they like fall out of phase with our universe or whatever. Sure. But we're speculating. We're making that up. Like we're we're like if I'm saying that I'm almost giving credit that I don't know is necessarily there. We're gleaming. It, that is a fair,
0: educated guess. Yeah, I think that you can certainly infer that from the context it provided. Yeah, coupled with thinking about our understanding of transdimensionalism. 60 years ago compared to all the research that's being done today and actual physical tests that are done on you know light refraction and wave versus particle states you know
1: and, and, and things like that i mean yeah. back
0: when he was doing it all they had was schrodinger's cat
1: right you know, they, like, they just they just put a cat in a box and yeah. then shot and then, shot a yeah. uh, radioactive isotope into it just as a hobby they didn't even it wasn't even a scientific it was just like that was all they had back in the day you know that didn't <laughs> use themselves somehow yeah. Okay, but as far as, like, scientific rigor goes, for instance, this is another story, and the Ray Bradbury we just did had a bunch of these, where Mars has a breathable atmosphere. Why does Mars have a breathable atmosphere? Don't worry about it. Yeah, it just is. I I mean, you know, in the Martian
0: Chronicles, they they go there, and it is just breathable. There is no explanation. There's not, like, hell, there are even trees that line the streets and what have you. Mm. So, oftentimes, older science fiction relies on you just being on board with the scene
1: that's being set, you know what I mean? Which... It's fine. The truthful answer to why does Mars have a breathable atmosphere is that's not what this story is about. If you want to... <laughs> that's true. If you want to read a very long trilogy about Mars acquiring a breathable atmosphere, it's called the Mars Trilogy. It's by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a reasonably good time, but it's also three mammoth books that are very technical, they and think. that's not what Heinlein wanted to do. Sure. Yeah. Look, I'll
0: drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. I'm I'm cool with it. I Like, Mars has breathable... Sure. When they're on Venus in the long rain... mm mm-hmm. Draining. Yeah, well, but it's... All, water. It's also, like, the crushing gravity... Right. ...doesn't affect anybody either. It's, it's just, like... Again, it relies on their understanding, their their contemporary understanding of physics, astronomy.
1: Well, and this is something I'm never... Like, 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 I don't actually know how much people knew at that time. Okay. Like, this is 1961. you have to be pretty goddamn nerdy. You have to be... Like, not only do you need to know like what these actual atmospheres are composed of. You need to know who knew what and when, which I, yeah, I have no idea. Hubble was like the revolution.
0: It was like the 20s, late 20s, turning into the 30s, like when telescopic was really coming through. So like, even then the development of that technology wasn't as exponential as it is now with the generation of computer chips and and software technology. So a lot of this stuff was still analog and producing all that shit or having the capacity even to machine all of the parts necessary was few and far between, if not commissioned by government authorities specifically to make one or two that are going to last 20 years so let's say the most high-tech telescopes are like the mid-30s they're getting the same information over the course of the 20 years that these guys are going based off of i mean if you think about it like the pictures of the moon that were in our textbooks sure there's craters on it whatever whatever I'm seeing pictures that people are taking from the ground that shows the different mineral deposits that are, that are actually on the moon. It's like green and orange and shit. The moon is multicolored. Hmm. Yeah. But that's just the amount of technology in just the last 30 years that has improved. So, I mean, it, and that that's at an exponential rate. So, yeah. for these guys, they're just going kind of like from their own imagination, yeah. They're, they're not really gleaming a lot from hard science right. I mean, and Which
1: is fine, because yeah. Yeah, that's so not I the
0: we, about. I think we have the right to infer, I guess, yeah. is what, I'm, what yeah. I'm getting at. You know no. what I
1: mean? And it's not the most important thing in the world. All fiction is stuff that didn't actually right? happen yeah remember like, that <laughs> fiction
0: part like, you don't <laughs> actually oh
1: you shit what the yeah, fuck yeah, yeah no it's, it's, know, it's i don't know for yeah. some reason just some anal retentive part of my brain wants to be like what's going on here and yeah i've been reserving the water cooler facts yeah. more for like the scientific aspect of
0: whatever it is that i'm talking about and, yeah because i do find it fascinating yeah that that is why science fiction is i think fascinating to people is because of the potential yeah. I mean we're we are kinda not far off from hover cars and shit,
1: hopefully. I I mean like maybe. Yeah. Who I mean, knows? Yeah. I, well, I think that it's wild. Like the internet is weirdly like the most transformational piece of technology ever invented i think it's a fair thing you can like make that argument anyway oh i couldn't agree more and it literally has no physical substance like there there aren't really science fiction authors who are writing about, about like i'm really excited to write about communication technologies but realistically those are like the things that have really changed well i mean ansibles are that's not the point I mean, but but like... But I get what you mean. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Heinlein did. He had a 1943 short story called Let There Be Light, wherein the science fiction technology was solar panels. And that was the whole... Yeah. Like, which I was just so pleased by. I was like, hey, check... Like, you know, 43. I mean, that was a pretty wild thing to think of.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was 80 years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And even like the first whatever photovoltaic uh, cells or whatever were developed in like the, the 50s, but they weren't viable as like a practical thing until... I don't know when exactly, but quite recently. Yeah. Well, I think that
0: science fiction will continue to predict technology, if not direct the development of technology, just based on a commercial either requirement or need for the advancement of certain things. For instance, you know,
1: like Bluetooth technology or cell phones from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love how in Star Wars they can travel faster than light, but they still need a wired headset. That's juicy. That has always been super <laughs> funny to me. <laughs> I do love, like, also in Blade Runner where in the
0: miniature, when you look at traffic, it's all moving very quickly. But when you close in on a scene, they're doing it on a forklift that's just at a scene, lowering it down
1: with, like, you know, like, dry ice coming out the bottom and shit. And it's just like, man. uh... I will say, I think that one of the major things that's standing in the way of flying cars is, like, how bad people are at driving in two dimensions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that might be we have helicopters. Helicopters are flying cars. Well, they, they now have, like,
0: helicopter hectodro- drones with, like, a central pod that people can sit in, and, like, oh, it really? has all these, yeah, these features and what have you. I think we're pretty close. Okay. In 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 the bladed sense. Like, it has, like, rotors and what have yeah. you. Yeah. So, it'll be, like, a giant, like, drone, basically, that you would fly around, but instead of a body in the center of the camera, I'm sure it'd have a camera on it,
1: but, like, it has all the same sensors and stuff. It just has a pod for a human. Um, so our goal is to become rich enough to afford one by the time they exist. They do exist. Oh, they do exist now. Well, damn! I guess I dropped the ball on that one. Sure did. Yeah. yeah, yeah we, happen. We should have invested in Bitcoin, man. Ah, fuck. Mm, Fifteen only, years ago. If yeah. only I would have listened to that awful guy in my from go- <laughs> So, Reese, you may recall the character Madame Vassant, the astrologer who is the consultant for the president to make his decisions based on. And I know that that's obviously like the most exciting character in the novel. And I know what you're wondering, Reese. according to astrology... What would be your romantic compatibility with Robert A. Heinlein? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. I've had something commissioned, and it turns out that it would be a brief but very intense affair. However, he would not support you in your career. Oh. Yeah, a little disappointing. Well, Whereas I need a supportive man. Heinlein and I, the, I, I guess the sense is that the sex wouldn't be quite as good as it would be between you and he, but uh-huh. we would have a lot more longevity, and it would be a little more of a like a supportive thing, which is nice. What is he? Is he an Aries? He is a Cancer. A cancer. Yes, which uh, explains his claws and carapace Mm. as a crab person. Indeed. Well, humans
0: are crabs. So let me ask you this, then. What what are you? Because I'm a Capricorn. I'm a Pisces. You're a Pisces. Yes. Well, at least you're under the sea together. I think think that's why you are there for longevity. Right, because you have to hold your breath. But Capricorns, I got that little mermaid tail.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Yeah. That's why we can book (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and then I head back to land yeah. with my goat, with my ram
1: half. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. <laughs> to, to each thing, there is a season. And do you... I get to choose which hindline? Um, oh, like, you, like you're, you're thinking, you're thinking, I've, you're thinking early hindline. I'm thinking navy hindline. Navy, navy hindline, Yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's smart. yeah cool. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, me with the long-term thing, I've got like the the sort of wrinkled-up mustachioed gentleman. which Yeah, is fine. but
0: yeah, yeah, no. You love. You learn to love. I mean, you you love. The Heinlein
1: that was within the Heinlein that is. Damn. Yeah. Damn, that's deep. This is actually... No, uh, Harshaw has a statue in his house of, like, a... I don't remember the name. But it's a real-world sculptor who, who he admires for being able to sculpt the statue of an old woman such that, uh, in his estimation, you can, like, see the beautiful woman that she once was. And I think that he's imploring me personally to see him in that respect. Wow. Go dig up his grave. Mm. And then probably don't like, you know, disclose anything else while being recorded, but it's going to happen. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and a special shout out to my lovely girlfriend, Cassie Rood, whose support included, but was not limited to getting us those astrology predictions. Thank you, Cassie.
0: Folks, you know, we, we try to make this a monthly show. It's been closer to two months since the last episode, you know, life gets in the way.
1: Primarily my
0: bad. Uh, well also mine. I mean, you know, and this is also a, a thick book oh yeah so we definitely recommend it you know head to Powell's, go grab a copy they have a hundred of them there's also an abridged edition that's significantly shorter yeah they also have an ultimate edition which is hardback with gold leaf uh writing on the cover which has an intro by neil gaiman yeah, that I would actually really love to own if yeah. I were to get a hardcover version. Well, of this. but
1: that's hardcover books are like more expensive. and you can't like you know just shove them in your pocket and stuff. And that's yeah. true. So that's
0: why this next one we you can shove in your pocket. That's true. Uh, you know, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is what I mean. I I have we have a copy right here um you can get it at pals it's 225 pages yeah i mean you know it's you can run through it pretty quickly and like dude feel how light this copy is
1: wow right yeah that's not even like tiny prints or anything no it's not yeah Yeah. i'm excited i'm excited yeah Yeah. i know that i i've seen the movie i have not actually read the book yet but I did open to a random page and see the word Voight-Kampff, so I know it has at least a few similarities. It does have some similarities, but we're also going to get into the
0: differences for oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, just like every good science fiction novel, when Hollywood gets its hands on it, it gets bastardized for the screen. Uh, although I do love the, the Blade oh, yeah. Runner movie. I, I haven't seen 2049 yet. No, me neither. Uh, so I I may do like the triplet, like reread, do Android's Dream of
1: Electric Sheep, watch Blade Runner, Final Cut, lead into twenty forty nine. That's that's ambitious right there. And you said you have done Blade Runner. As an episode,
0: have done Blade Runner as an episode, but we're definitely going to touch on it yeah. again, yeah, you know, in, in some respects. So it's one of my favorite stories, and I love, and you know, it's an
1: awesome combination of like science fiction, but like bringing in like really heavy film noir elements, and just like doing something that's, yeah, I mean, whatever. Everybody knows what Blade Runner is. Blade Runner awesome. Yeah. Blade Runner's awesome. Noah, always good to chat with you, buddy. Yeah, always good to chat with you. Uh, Good to close another chapter, and I'm excited to open up uh, Philip K. Dick next time. Awesome, buddy. Well, I will see you. Hell yeah.
0: Thanks again, Noah, for those grok and facts. That's not how you use that word, but grok does sound like a fun new curse word I'm going to try and popularize. Definitely give Stranger in a Strange Land a read, as well as other great novels by Heinlein, including Starship Troopers and Have Spacesuit, Will Travel. travel, The next chapter of the book report covers A Scanner Darkly by legendary author Philip K. Dick. I know during the interview we talked about do androids dream of electric sheep, but we're going to run with A Scanner Darkly instead. And we're going to go for a real dicking, if you will, because this is one of his headier novels that requires a multifaceted dive, so definitely stay tuned for that episode coming in late December, before the turn of the year. I'm stoked to get into the realm of PKD, because not only is he a hyper-nerd, but he also has a super interesting and tragic life story. Plus, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is getting covered on Science Factual with guest comedian Jeremiah Coughlin. That episode drops Tuesday, December 20th from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio. Here at The Book Report, we strive to put out a monthly show. Now, that may not always be the case, what with life rearing its vile and monstrous head about like it's trying to shake off a wet paper bag. Plus, we do read a ton of books. And you should too. With that being said, stay tuned for monthly updates starting in 2023. Until next time, this has been Reese Hendricks signing off for Noah Linsk and The Book Report. And remember to support your local bookstores. right, so we're in Powell's in downtown Portland, Oregon. We're going to be looking for... Ubik by Philip K. Dick. I guess that's going to be in the gold room with all the other sci fi and other nerds.
1: This is cooking. We've done it. We found Eldorado, the
0: city of. Baltimore. Oh, it, that's true. The gold room. I wish it was bigger. Or at least I wish the true crime section was bigger. Or at least that they had more Harold Schechter. That would be nice. Okay, so PKD. Okay. There we go. There's Man in the High Castle. Time out of joint.
1: Ubik. There we go. The screenplay. Okay. So this is a screenplay based on his novel, Ubik. The film was eventually scrapped, but the screenplay was saved for later, published in 1985. I would rather just read... I mean, I think a lot of his... Well, but even if they don't have that, I think that honestly, like... Um, it is a staff pick. The, the description is psychic
0: corporate espionage on the moon. Yes. Dick's best says Andy D. I'm assuming he's, like, also Andy Dick. <gasps> what, if it's, what if Andy Dick worked at Portland's
1: premier bookstore? I think, I think that's, um, yeah. They have a lot of dick here. Indeed, no. It's uh, a standard it's Darkly. I
0: wouldn't. I wouldn't mind picking up either.
1: I would be down to do that. I mean, I honestly feel like none of them are going to be bad. I've read a couple of Philip K. Dick books recently, ish. I mean, so. I, I mean, I love his writing style. Yeah. For sure. So, um, I have The Man in the High Castle already, actually. And in fact, too. I have this edition of it. Oh, I have yeah. a, uh yeah, I have a different it one. would be funny to come to Powell's to decide that we're going to read a book that we both already have and thus don't need to buy. True,
0: <laughs>
1: um, but you know, uh, <laughs> we
0: can we can we don't have to go with that dick. We can choose some other dick. To, no,
1: I mean, and there's uh, a variety of dick, and there's and there's and there's many and there's many. Uh, dupladix many many Dick books of multiple copies. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, That's true. I mean, do you want to do a scanner, Darkly? We can also kind of talk about the film. Uh, I have not seen the film, okay. but I guess I have eyes and am capable of watching a film. Um, I would I would guess you would be. Yes. <laughs> I've always considered myself to be capable of watching a film. It's 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 what it says in my is, Tinder bio. Is that one of your great skills? I've I've I sort of I put it on my resume. I have not uh, been called back, but there may be other and better reasons for that. <laughs> What's this one, Dallas. These SF masterworks are never ever bad. Uh I began with a blinding light, divine revelation. What is the what no. is. It? Um, Valis. Valis It began with a blinding light A divine revelation from a mysterious intelligence That called itself Valis Fast, active, living, intelligent system And with that, the fabric of reality Was torn apart and laid bare So that anything seemed possible But nothing seemed quite right It was madness, pure and simple But what if it were true? I honestly have just that read it sounds... And I don't really know what's going on But Oh, I mean, that okay. sounds pretty rad yeah. yeah
0: This right here, ooh, it has the Minority Report in it, too Oh, story, uh, yeah. sorry, sorry so is selected stories by P.K.D. And we can do kind of like a top five thing, like what we did with Ray Bradbury's Illustrated Man.
1: Yeah. um,
0: I don't know. At the same time... um,
1: We want to give people the opportunity to find books for themselves yeah, i that... think darkly might be the best one especially because if there's a movie and there's space to talk about the differences between the book and the movie i mean if we're having trouble but i honestly don't even think we're going to have trouble filling out an amount of time talking about a philip K. Dick book i think no that, probably not yeah i think okay. you're about i think you're about to have a fun conversation about do androids dream of electric sheep mm-hmm. with um jeremiah C- uh, Coughlin, G- jeremiah Coughlin, because there's a ton in that book to talk about and that's gonna be very fun and then yeah definitely stoked on that and then uh okay yeah so it's one of the the famous ones for a reason i mean i haven't read it but right you got to imagine yeah Yeah. all right well settled fantastic scanner darkly